Eight minutes after 10 o'clock, hour number two is underway. Hour number two, by the way, of three. Can you dig it? Yeah. Second day of the three-hour version of Always Right on AM 1420, The Answer. Appreciate you being here. We've got a good guest scheduled for the top of the next hour. David Camioner, Life's at News, going to be joining us. Uh, very much uh, looking forward to talking to him about why Joe Brandon is refusing to increase energy production here in the United States, even after cutting it uh, from uh, in being imported by Russia, which is the right thing to do. Why will he not do it? And why is he going to continue to blame Vladimir Putin for all of this? The second big reason for inflation is Vladimir Putin. From the moment he put his over 150,000 troops on the Ukrainian border, the price of gasoline in January went up 75 cents. I mean, I don't want to point out everything that's wrong with that when I say that the invasion of Ukraine began in February. February 24th is when that, that launched. And he's telling us that the price of gas went up 75 cents in January. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what to say about this guy really anymore. I'm sick of this stuff. <laughs> We have to talk about it because the American people think the reason for inflation is government spending more money. Simply not true. <laughs> Gas prices were under two bucks a gallon when uh, Donald Trump left office. They're four thirty-three national average now. Putin invaded what about uh, twenty days ago, and he wants to blame it all on Putin. Peter Kersenow has got a response to that, I am quite certain, and more. Our good friend Peter Kersenow, the longest-serving member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights, best-selling author, sometimes columnist, sometimes law professor, all-the-time lawyer, joining us now once again for his regular Tuesday visit on AM 1420, The Answer. Peter, good morning, good sir. Morning, Bob. Hey, congratulations on the third hour. That's, uh, that's exciting news. And, uh, you know, it just occurred to me as I was listening to the intro, uh, it's similar to the intros you've done in the past. Uh, being the longest serving member on the U.S. Civil Rights Commission makes me sound like I'm old and decrepit. <laughs> and it makes, it also, I think, uh, raises issues as to whether or not I'm, I'm entirely sane by serving on that commission for so long. It's, uh, the, the kind of issues that we entertain on that commission, uh, they're cutting edge issues. Uh, they're idiotic issues, but they're usually about five to ten years ahead of where the rest of society is. It's a kind of canary in the coal mine. But, uh, in any event, good to be with with you again and again, congratulations on the third hour. Thank you, sir. To uh, clarify some of that, for those who don't know, you are old. You're just not decrepit. You're old and in amazing shape. You're, I mean, that's the thing. Anybody who saw you at the Bringing America Back to Life conference in your great presentation knows that. So, yes, you are old, as you pointed out. Uh, just uh, compl- just finished, or I'm sorry, entered your seventh decade, right? Yeah, well, almost. I'm, I'm getting there. About to, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. The thing is, you know, a little, kind of a pro tip here for all your listeners there, and I really mean this. Yeah. Um, you're, you're right. I have been uh, working out my entire life. I've been fortunate not to have any serious debilitating injuries. I, you know, I've been in the hospital a few times for, you know, incidents of my own uh, making. But nonetheless, um, I, yeah, I really do think that simple things like just exercise, and I believe in both aerobic and anaerobic, and I try to do a lot of 
heavy lifting. You shouldn't do that after a certain age, but if you've been doing it all your life, you can do it safely. And I do think that heavy lifting does have a, uh, a kind of rejuvenative effect that nothing else does, even uh, distance running or and sprints also. As you know, I like doing my hill runs. I think when you sprint uphill, that type of anaerobic activity really has kind of a rejuvenating effect. So anyway, that's the uh, the 15 seconds <laughs> of non-political uh, discourse. All right, very, very. No, I'll tell you what, very good, uh, Pete. It's uh, it's it's good advice, no doubt about it. The heavy lifting I do is is uh, trying to make sense out of Democrat policies. That's the heavy lifting that I have to do. Every day. <laughs> it's like it doing a four hundred fifty pound deadlift. Yeah, it doesn't do much for my shape, though. Unfortunately, uh, just just the mental <laughs> side. All right, Pete. Um, I want you to react to what I just played for a moment here yesterday, speaking in Washington D.C. before some group or another. Brandon uh, blamed. Uh, the increase in inflation and gas prices in particular on two things, COVID and on Putin. To the COVID side, I reminded everybody before you came on that um, President Trump was president during the worst of COVID. When we had two weeks to flatten the curve starting in March of 2020, the entirety of the rest of that year, President Trump was in office. Gas still didn't rise up over two bucks a gallon, or if it did, it was two oh two, and then it went back down to one ninety seven or whatever. Um, that was the worst of COVID. Lockdowns, businesses shut down, and so forth. Gas uh, was under two bucks a gallon. So how can Biden claim that in twenty twenty one, when he also had to deal with COVID, and essentially, you know, a lot of the restrictions began to be lifted as twenty twenty one went on? How does he blame about a about a two dollar increase in gas? on COVID, and then obviously the rest of it uh, since last month when Putin went into Ukraine? Well, he can get away with it, or he believes he can get away with it, because he knows the media is going to do the heavy lifting for him. They will either not cover idiotic statements like that, or they'll put some type of spin on it that makes it seem as if that's in fact the case. And consider this, Bob. Uh, there's a poll that came out just a few days ago that showed, to, to let you know what kind of influence the media can have, and I don't think in this case it, it is going to be effective, and it hasn't been effective thus far if you take a look at the polling data. But nonetheless, it's the only thing Biden and the Democrats have, because a lot of this is their own, almost everything is of their own making, as you just indicated. Before uh, Biden got into office, we were looking at gas prices that were around two to two fifteen a gallon, and now we're well over four dollars a gallon. Most of that spike occurred since the uh, or before the invasion of Ukraine. But why they think they may be able to get away with it, and they have to take this tack because it's the only thing available to them is that the media is going to cover for them. Consider this this one fact: the media or a media poll just recently asked voters. Um, who is responsible for Putin's invasion of Ukraine? Now, that question by itself is nonsensical because Putin's responsible for his invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. But nonetheless, 34% of respondents said Trump. Consider that. 34% said that a guy who's been out of office for more than one year and who's been harder on Russia than any other president of the last 20 years is responsible for the invasion. See, that's what I hate about polling, Pete, because I'm, you know, you can't say, please explain when you're conducting a survey. You know, you can't say, why do you say that? All you can do is ask other questions, yes or no questions, but I would love to hear the rationale for that 34%. 
Yeah, I would love to hear that, too, uh, because, well, maybe not, because I'm confused enough as it is. But nonetheless, that's an extreme. This is why the Democrats are in trouble also, because they have been coming up with nonsense for, well, since I've been alive, but uh, especially in the last five years. And the reason they come up with the nonsense and the reason why we see them flat footed right now in so many areas, they don't have rational explanations or they don't have meaningful policy policy positions is because their political muscles have atrophied. They have not been having to exercise them because the media has been carrying their water, repeating stuff that is just on its face stupid and sometimes insane, like these gas policies and inflation and who's invading or who's responsible for Putin invading Ukraine. So when we heard, for example, two years ago, something that was palpably ridiculous, and we all thought it was going to redound to the detriment of the Democrats. That phrase was, defund the police. I still maintain that is the dumbest political statement I've ever heard. Um, They said that because there's no pushback. Republicans, on the other hand, almost uniformly have to have three or four explanations or fallback positions because the media is going to drill down on almost anything they say, regardless of how truthful it may be, how accurate it may be. But Democrats get away with all kinds of stuff, so their political muscles, their explanatory muscles, they start to get a little bit flabby. And that's what we see with Biden. He thinks, uh, look, Biden's a different case. Biden is, and his uh, vice president, I think, Bob, they've exceeded our expectations in terms of rank stupidity. I mean, it, 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 again, I, I'm of an age where I'm reluctant to use terms like that, and I know I've been using them a lot, but those are the best descriptors, and maybe not even uh, the most damaging accurately descri- accurate descriptors that you can have for these two individuals. We have individuals, though, that are saying some of the uh, most ridiculous things that I've ever heard anybody, regardless of their station on the political spectrum, uh, whether they're presidents, whether they're Democrats, whether they're mayors, whether they're socialists, doesn't matter. Uh, Biden has the ability to utter just utter uh, just sheer nonsense on a regular basis. And Kamala Harris has really exceeded him in many regards. So here we are. You know, we're, we're here with Biden talking about who's responsible for oil prices, who's responsible for inflation. And as that little sticker that you see, sometimes when you go to fill up your gas, your, your uh, car with gas, that little bumper sticker that you see that's sometimes on the pump, he did that. He's the person responsible for that. And going back to, um, you know, uh, who's responsible for the invasion of Ukraine, again, it's Putin. But Biden has done so many things, and really, you have to go back to his election itself. Many of us, you and I have talked about it before Biden was even elected. We talked about the vulnerability of the United States if he gets elected because it's going to send a signal to the bad actors of the world that America, at least the strong America, is closed for business right now, and it's time to see what you can get before we come to our senses and get some rational actor in the Oval Office. So again, you know, um, he can say that because the media allows him to say that. Yeah, yeah well, they, they do, and that's a, that's the a difficult part about it. Nobody is challenging him, and, and if you do challenge him in a, in a way that is not directly to his face because you can't get access, if you challenge him on social media, you get canceled, you get blocked, you get suspended, and all the rest, and that's what makes this so incredible, and he does get away with this. I still don't think he's going to get away with it big picture because in November, 
everybody is going to remember this, and uh, they do understand who is responsible for maybe not, quote-unquote, Putin invading, and 34% of these idiots said Donald Trump, but they know full well who is responsible for uh, the increase in uh, the inflation and the increase in gas costs right now. And I'll explain more about that coming up and ask you to analyze that, too. We'll take a quick time out now at 1020. Curse now with us on AM 1420, The Answer, right back. Welcome back to Always Right with Bob France on AM 1420. The answer. So, Ukraine is a country in Europe. It exists next to another country called Russia. Russia is a bigger country. Russia is a powerful country. Russia decided to invade a smaller country called Ukraine. So, basically, that's wrong. I am here, standing here on the northern flank, on the eastern flank, talking about what we have in terms of the eastern flank and our NATO allies, and what is at stake at this very moment. What is at stake this very moment are some of the... Uh, keep, keep going there, uh, Kamala. You're, you're doing an outstanding job, seriously. Okay. <laughs> a friend in need is a friend indeed. <laughs> Okay, so this time, Pete, uh, that's that's just a short little summary of uh, Kamala's uh, Eastern European trip in which she went there to assure the rest of the world not to worry. We've got this. We're on it. We are the United States. We will rally. We will lead the world in stopping and responding to Vladimir Putin. That's who we sent. And because I laughed, and maybe you laughed, and a whole bunch of other people laughed, and a whole bunch of other people cringed and hung their head in shame that this is what we sent over there, apparently that makes us all racist. What it is is that they constantly question the qualifications of black women, and that's why people are saying that she's unprepared. And oh, I disagree. I think she's You can disagree, but that's woman. the truth of it. And so this is based in racism. This is based in misogyny. And we're talking about a woman that has extensive experience um, abroad. And I, I think this is just... Uh, that's Sonny Hostin on a TV show uh, called The View you may have heard of and never watched. Uh, so there you go, Pete. How much of the Kamala Harris backlash for her leading the response to the Russian invasion, going to Poland, going to Bulgaria, going to Romania, uh, and embarrassing us all like this, how much of that is based in racism and misogyny? Um, about minus 100%. Just consider if a white male had looked that idiotic. Uh, they would have been raked over the coals. It would have probably been on the front page of the New York Times, especially if it's a Republican. Uh, that was not just an embarrassing performance. That was a performance that has real-life consequences. There are, as you know, people in the Kremlin, people in the Politburo, the Chinese Politburo. I mean, if you read um, any kind of analyses of the Chinese, for example, in their intelligence services and their military intelligence services, what they do in terms of studying us is truly extraordinary. They have tens of thousands of people who are devoted to studying our leaders, and they do it 24-7. They look at every single sentence, every little utterance, and they have psychological profiles that are developed about these guys. It's extraordinary. Um, I'm trying to think of one place your readers or your listeners could go to uh, to see some of this analysis. It, uh, I can't think of one, but I'll try to think of one during the course of, of this discussion. Uh, heck, all you have to do is read uh, Tom Clancy's, I think it was, um, 
who does a very good job, by the way, of course, Clancy and the people who've written for him do a very good job of researching these kinds of things, um, where they talk about the intelligence services of China studying our leaders in exquisite, extraordinary, excruciating detail. And when they look at a Kamala Harris, um, I'm wondering what they're thinking in terms of their just emotional reaction, because the conclusions that almost anybody could come to is this is a person who should probably be working at 7-Eleven. No disrespect to people who work at 7-Eleven, but Kamala Harris is adult. I have wondered how it is that she eventually passed the bar exam. I think she failed once, but it's extraordinary that she passed it. And then she became attorney general of the state of California. Now, a lot of people have, you know, questions as to how that happened, or they have their own uh, surmise as to how that happened. And, you know, I, I wonder, too. I'm not going to get into all that stuff. But uh, this is not somebody who should be vice president of the United States. We have a president who shouldn't be president of the United States. And these things have real world consequences, as we see right now. You and I and lots of other people have discussed this over a year ago, two years ago, that when they got elected, it was going to send a signal to our adversaries, to the aggressors in the world. Just as, you know, when you were a little kid on the playground, weakness invites aggression. It's not simply uh, physical weakness. It's mental weakness. It's strategic weakness. And almost everything these two say and do telegraphs that weakness. The problem is it's not confined to them. So it's con- it has real-world ramifications, not just even on the United States. It has ramifications for the entire Western world, because the world and history did not stop when Harris and Biden got elected. And Vladimir Putin doesn't care whether or not Harris is a black female. What he sees is a weak and stupid person. Well, that's because he has eyes and he has ears, and uh, that is very obvious and plain to see. Uh, that is what she is. Pete, um, let's go from weak, though, and, uh, you know, impossibly unprepared to also just completely oblivious to the facts of the situation as far as our international alliances. Listen to this part. So I will say what I know we all say, and I will say over and over again. The United States stands firmly with the Ukrainian people in defense of the NATO alliance. Pete? Word salad again. First of all, Ukraine well, is not part of NATO. I'm that's sorry, go ahead. the part. No, that, that, go you ahead. Know, yeah, it wasn't the word salad that I was, it was that last part. She said that the United States stands firmly with the Ukrainian people as part of the NATO alliance. Ukraine is not in NATO. This is the basis for Putin's, you know, his justification for for invading is because he doesn't want Ukraine to flirt with and become a part of NATO and have NATO have more access to the to the Russian border. She thinks that Ukraine is already the in Ukrainian NATO. Ukrainian people in defense of the NATO alliance. How can we defend the NATO alliance if they're not in NATO? Uh, that part is just that that's that's beyond just you know showing weakness it's showing a, an abject ignorance of of international geopolitics and alliances and bob stop being racist and sexist but here we are <laughs> we have sent this person overseas yeah. and in an, an extremely serious circumstance where people's ears are wide open their eyes are wide open and they're listening to every word every comma everything and they hear that and think how jarring that is. I mean, just a few miles from where she is, relatively speaking, bombs are going off and people are being dismembered. And they hear this. And then what, what else does she do? Again, 
the cognitive dissonance related to what we just talked about, but also the emotional dissonance. Look at the fact that she laughed in the presence of the, of the Polish prime minister. She's laughing in just a few kilometers to her east. By the way, she didn't know where she was. It was the eastern flank, no. the northern flank, the southern flank. She has no clue where she is. But she's laughing when people are being torn to bits about refugees. Are we going to be taking refugees? I guarantee you, the borders are... Kamala Harris wouldn't be laughing, and she didn't laugh when they had that fake photo of Border Patrol agents allegedly whipping illegal immigrants coming across our border. Well, you, we know that wasn't happening, but there was high dudgeon. They were enraged by those photos, right? But she's laughing about people being torn asunder. This is not just dumb and stupid. This is immoral, and we should call it as such. We shouldn't be tolerating this kind of stuff from our ostensible leaders. No question about it. Pete, we'll take our time out here. We're going to come back. We've got a lot more to talk about with you, including what this is going to mean to the Democrats uh, and to the country in November. Uh, what are minorities who are oftentimes the tipping point between victory and defeat? What are they doing? How are they viewing all of this? I know you've got some numbers to share with us. We'll do that next on AM 1420, The Answer. Okay, and it's uh, an incredible thing that have, it's happened over the last few years. A lot of great things, and you're paying what two dollars a gallon for your gasoline? That's okay. You know what that's like? That's like a tax cut. That's bigger than a tax cut. If Biden got in, you'd be paying seven dollars, eight dollars, nine dollars. That was Donald Trump back in the summer of 2020. <laughs> we were at two dollars. And here we are in uh, just after year one of Biden, and it's only rising, and we're at 433 national average on our way to $5, $6, $7, and probably even higher than that. He was right. The question that I have is whether or not it was just a campaign, you know, a little quip, or if he knew exactly what he was talking about. Let's ask Peter Kirsch now a little bit more about that. Peter continues with us. Hey, Pete. Um, you know, everybody's been playing that clip recently. It's kind of been flying around. Everybody, oh, Trump knew it. He was spot on there, and he was. What I want to know is, do you think he knew what Putin would do if he lost? Do you think he knew or believed what Taiwan, or excuse me, what China would do to Taiwan, which, of course, is a very, very real possibility, depending on how uh, you know we and the international community respond to what Putin is doing now to Ukraine? Do you think that he knew he was keeping the uh, the madmen at bay while he was there, and that if he is gone, uh, they would absolutely act, and it would destabilize the world oil market, and it would destabilize, quite frankly, everything? Do you think it was just a kind of an off-the-cuff remark when he said, if he gets in there, it's going to be six, seven, eight, or nine, or do you think he knew exactly what would happen? I think he is the latter. I think he knew exactly what would happen because it wasn't simply an off-the-cuff remark, Bob. And I know you've played other clips over the year, over the last year, uh, that show that on numerous occasions, 
Trump had made predictions of this sort. And I'm not simply, you know, commending Trump for these predictions, because frankly, a lot of people, including you and I, were making predictions similar to this. The handwriting, so to speak, was on the wall. The, the, the Democrats were telegraphing the idiotic things they were going to do. But because, as I said earlier, they're so insulated by the media, they don't even realize how stupid many of the proposals they make sound to the ordinary uh, average American who works for a living and really wor- know, oh, knows how the real world works when it comes to gas prices, when it comes to, again, weakness inviting aggression. So when Trump said these things, all you have to do is go back a little bit in history and see the pronunciations of a Putin or a Xi and also understand a little bit of, of human nature and what the ambitions were of these guys. These are guys are totally totalitarians. And they saw a very weak and feeble administration coming into office, and they decided we have, a, at best, a four-year window of opportunity to achieve our nationalistic aspirations, and they're going to do their best to try to achieve it. I think, depending upon what happens with Ukraine, I mean, there's so many things when it comes to war, all manner of things can happen. But as things stand now, I don't think we should be surprised if Putin tries to expand beyond Ukraine. Whether or not he goes into Baltic states and triggers a NATO Section 5 response is another matter, but I do think he's going to try to assert himself more broadly if he has some measure of success in Ukraine. Xi we know what's going to happen there. He's going to try to expand his sphere of influence in the South China Sea, and Taiwan's in great jeopardy. Right now, they're shaking in their boots. Well, they're not, because they, they, they got guts over there. But they are preparing in every respect for the possible invasion of Taiwan. And that would be, it's, it's not going to be as easy as it sounds. I know most people will look at Taiwan see a little blob of land, um, you know, sitting there in the sea in this huge China with billions of, or a billion people, plus, and think that this is going to be a walkover. It's not going to be a walkover, and that's why it's taking China a little bit of time to figure out how to do this. I'm sure they've got 15 different plans in which to do it. But again, going back to your initial question, yeah, I think Trump knew exactly what would happen. And he predicted not just gas, he, he predicted a lot of things with respect to uh, the uh, uh, a new world order and the aggressiveness of our adversaries. And he predicted many of the things that we're currently seeing in terms of inflation, um, This is what we had warned about when the media, let's face it, the media foisted Biden upon us. He didn't campaign. He was in his basement. They foisted him upon us, and they tried to tell us all kinds of bad things about Trump. You can hate Trump for all of his personal, you know, uh, idiosyncrasies, but uh, as somebody said, they'd much rather have mean tweets and no inflation than what we have right now. Well, you know, um, let's let's put that, that to the test here. Well, actually, in a moment, because I wanted to play the back half of the clip there when I played Trump predicting seven, eight, nine dollars a gallon under Joe Biden. The the back half of that clip is Mayor Pete, also known as Transportation Secretary Pete, uh, announcing what the real goal is here. Last month, we announced a five billion dollar investment to build out a nationwide electric vehicle charging network, so the people from rural to suburban to urban communities can all benefit from the gas savings of driving an EV. The average price of an electric car is $53,000. And I just had a listener text me and said, hey, Bob, ask Kersenau what he thinks about the Biden administration trying to get low-income folks in the hood to buy an expensive electric car because they cannot afford to put gas in their regular gas car. These people are so detached from reality. Talking about the hood. 
first of all, it's expensive, but it's also, I'm trying to think of how to put this. Um, I wouldn't buy an electric vehicle because, frankly, uh, I'm going to be very charitable. It's not me. Uh, I would be caught dead in one of those little things, and I suspect many of my neighbors wouldn't either. I'm an American, among other things, okay? And I'm an American male, and I grew up with muscle cars, and I will confess in a misspent youth to doing some drag racing that was unlawful. Uh, but nonetheless, <laughs> nonetheless you know, um, this is America. We should be able, with responsibility, to buy what we want to buy. And first of all, electric vehicles are simply not practical yet. And they may not ever be because we're using fossil fuels to fuel the charging stations that Mayor Pete is all excited about in the first place. And then if there's any kind of a dislocation in terms of our energy supply, electric is the first to go. Just like with these solar panels. Solar panels presume solar, presume sol, presumes the sun. And if you have a cloudy day, guess what? Hey, you know what? You're going to need backup. And the backup comes from coal, natural gas, and oil. Uh, we are. So somebody brought this up on the show. Hey, Pete, somebody brought, brought this up on the show yesterday. Whenever there's a power outage, what do most families do when their electric goes out? They fire up their what? Their gas generator. Exactly. <laughs> because that's exactly. more reliable. Exactly. These people don't live in the real world, though, the judges of the world. You know, they live in this theoretical kind of seminar world uh, that the rest of us don't live in. And unfortunately, these guys are in charge. Jennifer Granholm has absolutely no clue. Listen to I, I, Look, this is not a partisan screed. It just happens to be partisan because the Democrats seem to be walking in a lockstep in insanity. You have Granholm, you've got Buttigieg, you've got all these cabinet secretaries, Mayorkas, all these people live in a different world from you and me, and we're suffering the consequences like it right now. And I know in your intro you talked about some changes in the demographics here in terms of voting. It's having an effect from A to Z. In other words, traditional Democratic constituencies are looking at this thing, and even they are saying, this is a bridge too far. They have to look out for their own interests, the interests of their family, and almost everything that Democrats are proposing, by the way, they all sound as if they've come directly from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the squad and Bernie Sanders. This is what we got. We, the, Joe Biden's not in charge. The squad, or at least their premises and ideology, is in charge, and we're suffering the consequences. Nobody who's got more than a fourth-grade education would tolerate this kind of insanity, but apparently this is part of the Democratic and the media's, but I repeat myself, playbook. They think this kind of stuff works because, uh, unfortunately, not too many of them have been spending much time in the real world. I've always, always said, Bob, <clears throat> sorry for going off on a tangent here, but I think many of your listeners would agree that it's a good thing for people who aren't in manual labor jobs, uh, or what I call real jobs, to at least have spent several years in such jobs at, when they were in school or something else, because it helps ground you in reality. And when you look at the Biden administration, these are the kind of guys you can tell intuitively, instinctively, that when you and I were working in factories or working manual jobs, working tough jobs in the summer or you know during breaks and whatever it may be, or maybe even our first job, uh, you know, I happen to be a lawyer now, but that's not what I was. I, that's not how I was born. You know, my father was a steelworker, and I worked those kind of jobs, working in foundries and places like that. It grounds you in reality that there are certain fundamental <laughs> laws of gravity that apply to everybody. These guys, however, these you know Wharton School grads. No disrespect to Wharton School. No disrespect to Ms. McKinsey, but you know what I'm talking about. 
when you haven't bloodied yourself, when you haven't dirtied yourself, you have a perspective on the world that is unrealistic. And that's what we're seeing throughout the cabinet. Pete, um, let's look a little bit more. We just barely touched on what's going to happen in November as a result of all of this. And we talked about the demographics, blacks and Hispanics turning away from the Democrat Party in bigger numbers. Uh, and, and I think this is going to be, you know, kind of evidentiary of that. This, this consumer price index, U.S. city average in February of 2020, right before the pandemic was 257.97. In February of 22, last month, it was uh, 281.15. That's an increase of 8.2%. Inflation in urban areas in Florida, Georgia, and Arizona, battleground states all, have been significantly higher than that U.S. city average. In Atlanta, the change was 11.7%, up from 8.2%. In Florida, Tampa, Miami area, differences 11.8% and 10.2%, respectively. And in the urban areas in Arizona, the difference was 10.7%. So one would tend to think that if the people in those areas, which are massive population centers in battleground states, are upset with that extraordinary increase in their price of everything, all commodities leading to, uh, you know, are, are feeling, I should say, the effect, including 6,000 petrochemical-related uh, products, in addition to just the gasoline in their cars. If these people are tired of paying more, they, they do know who's in charge. They do know who's establishing the policy. Do you believe that will come out in November? Yeah, I do, and those are great stats. Um, and let me give you a couple more stats for your audience. All of those things, the confluence of all those factors in the real world, have caused reliable Democratic constituencies to move decisively toward Republicans. If you look at polling data, but not just polling data, actual elections that have occurred since the presidential election, Democrats are scared to death for a reason. Now, you know Kirstenau's ironclad rule of elections. I've always said this. If the Democrats cannot get on a national basis a floor of 88% of the black vote, and that's the absolute floor. If they can't get that, they cannot win, period, full stop, okay? Uh, that's 88%. Usually, Democrats get, um, you know, around 92 to 93% of the black vote. With respect to Hispanic vote, Democrats usually get or are expecting to get about 65% of Hispanic vote. And if they get below that, they are not viable. They just can't get it done anymore. All right. They have bled much of the white vote. They have to retain Hispanic vote and black vote just to be competitive on the national level. And of course, they have to have a lockstep media. Right now, as we speak, 27% of blacks view themselves as aligned with the Republican Party. Okay, so if you do the math on that, that's 73, far below 88, which is the floor. And more worrisome for Democrats is that 75% of Hispanics are aligning themselves with Republicans. In other words, if you ask the question, who do you think you're going to be voting for, you know, member of what party, come midterm elections, 75% of Hispanics will say, or fewer than 75% of Hispanics will say, um, Uh, that they're voting for Democrats, and only 73% or less of blacks are going to say that, and that is electoral death for Democrats. They can't win. It's it's an impossibility. Now, a long time between now and the election, but we don't see anything in the foreseeable future that's going to change that. I mean, Biden and the rest of the Democrats are continuing to do stupid things. And another bellwether, Bob, is the fact that um, 
Beto O'Rourke down in Texas is now saying that critical race theory needs to be abandoned. Okay? Beto O'Rourke saying get rid of critical race theory, which is one of the hallowed points Beto of the Democratic O'Rourke, Party. Yeah, Crystal- but Beto, Beto O'Rourke is, I think, the outlier. You know that because he is just a constant candidate. He has always, he failed his presidential bid. He's failing in his, failed in his Senate bid. And now he's saying, I'll try governor this time. He's just a perpetual candidate. He'll say anything for a vote depending on his audience. You know as well as I do, next month he'll be in front of a different audience and he'll say critical race theory needs to be in every, every American classroom. And if he does that, in addition to oil and inflation or gas prices and inflation, the thing that's driving a lot of the defection from the Democratic Party is critical race theory in schools or, or the school environment, uh, broadly speaking. Parents have had an opportunity to see the garbage that's being fed to their kids in many public schools, and they've recoiled in horror. We saw it with respect to the Virginia election, the gubernatorial election there. There have been a number of other discrete elections where this has been a huge, huge issue. You can't continue, as the Democrats had for the last year, and again, in large part because they've been insulated by the media from recognizing how lunatic some of this stuff. You can't continue to say defund the cops and that uh, little white kids are racist or have privilege and all kinds of other things, you know, uh, uh, tell lies about inflation and oil prices and and expect that you're going to be able to prevail in an election. I think there's a real problem. And if you take a look at three special elections down in Texas, in areas that are heavily Hispanic, almost overwhelmingly Hispanic, and prior to 2020 had been uniformly and reliably Democrat, they've elected Republicans. Uh, This is a a real wake-up call. Pete, let me take a time out here. We're a little bit past, but I do want to ask you one more question. Can you hang with us for one more short one? Okay, Pete Kirsten, I will answer the next question. About the woman of the year. You might be surprised to find out who that is. Curse now next. Peter Kirsten, I normally don't keep you for this last segment because I'm locking out the show, but now that I have a third hour ready to start after the top of the hour, I can use you in this moment. And I want to get uh, your reaction to USA Today's Women of the Year. Uh, apparently, they didn't choose just one woman. They do a segment or do a, a collection uh, in the newspaper of the women of the year. Now, one of them, you may be stunned to learn, is Kamala Harris for the phenomenal job that she did. <laughs> the phenom- phenomenal job she did on the southern border, keeping the uh, the border uh, secure. And then the amazing job she did representing the United States in foreign affairs uh, in Eastern Europe. But that is a tr- tremendous selection compared to the one I want you to respond to because the other or another of the women of the year highlighted by USA Today is Richard Levine, uh, also known as Dr. Yes. Rachel Levine, the U.S. Admiral Assistant Secretary. Yeah, Admiral, uh, Dr. Admiral, four-star Admiral Rachel Levine, the U.S. Assistant Secretary for Health, who is a biological male in a wig and some lipstick, has been named one of USA Today's Women of the Year. Pete, do what you will with that. Um, when we see aggression from the Russias and the Chinas of the world, I'm not saying that, you know, Dr. Levine has provoked this. But it's that type of attitude that causes our adversaries to think we're not serious people. There are are real-world consequences to many of the individual discrete things that we do. And these days, especially with the proliferation of media, everybody sees these kinds of things, and it has a more, 
I think, concentrated impact than it would have, say, 20 or 30 years ago. With respect to Dr. Levine, you can treat somebody with dignity and respect, and I would encourage everybody to do so, but at the same time, not accept things that are patently false. Dr. Levine can, can refer to himself as whatever he wants, and again, I will treat that person with dignity and respect, but then afford me at least the courtesy and the grace of, of treating me with dignity and respect and not forcing me to say something that is fundamentally untrue. It is false. So there are a lot of ramifications to this, and we're going to be working through this for a number of years, if not decades. And as you know, at the Civil Rights Commission, we saw this stuff a long time ago, and I was telling people to watch out for this because it goes beyond simply a man being a woman or a woman being a man and all these other things. This goes with how we think of ourselves as a society and what we can compel people to do or say. Uh, this goes back, and I said this Friday, Bob, when you were there at the uh, conference, mm -hmm. that you read many of the dystopian novels that nailed it. We seem to be living through it. But the one I would encourage people to read is Arthur Kessler's Darkness at Noon. If they can get you to say a man is a woman, it's not an issue of whether a man's a woman. It's whether or not they can get you to accept things that are not true. It is the first stage that totalitarians require their populations to go through to accept things that are fundamentally untrue. I'll treat Levine with all the respect that uh, he deserves, but treat me with the accordant respect also. And moreover, in my opinion, Pete, treat real women with the respect by not diminishing them to being just what somebody says that they are. Real women are real beings as women. They are part of, of God's construct of men and women, male and female, chromosomally, anatomically, physiologically, biologically. Uh, and if something is wrong psychologically, then deal with that. But stop making real women into caricatures because somebody decided they want to play woman, a woman uh, for their own personal. Uh, reasons. Peter Kirsten out. Great stuff as always, my friend. Thank you for the extra time, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Bob. That's Kirsten out wrapping up hour number two, but not wrapping up the show because we've got another hour to go. Technically, we'll leave some uh, time for O'Reilly at the end of our show, but hour number three coming up. Always right. AM 1420, the answer.